The Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement that replaces NAFTA liberalizes American access to our dairy and poultry markets. It makes it easier to cross-border shop tax and duty-free and eases some barriers to services trade. But in this summer's C.D. Howe Institute working paper, we learn the 21st century commodities of data and security are being compromised at Canada's expense. More stringent border enforcement will slow goods entering the country. And the Americans have a national security trump card with the ability to put any good or service in that category. As co-author Dan Kiriak writes, that's a $10 billion hit to Canada's economic welfare. I began our conversation by asking if this is the new cost of doing business with a protectionist America. Apparently, that is the case. Uh, it's certainly uh, the choice that Canada is about to make uh, with the ratification of this agreement. Uh, there is the big issue facing Canada of force majeure. The United States is a, by far a major trading partner. Uh, the United States is uh, determined to reshape its economy, to reindustrialize its economy as well as to promote its uh, 21st century data-driven uh, uh, elements of its economy. And uh, Canada cannot uh, deter the United States in those uh, regards, even if some of those aspects are welfare detracting for the U.S. and for ourselves. You use the phrase uh, force majeure. What do you mean by that? Are you suggesting that there are unknown circumstances that could crop up and, and kibosh our economy along the way? The United States has shown its preparedness to use uh, all the tools of protectionism at its disposal uh, to promote its goals of reindustrializing its economy. And Canada is very exposed to the United States. A very large share of our uh, exports go to the United States. We depend on the United States for a very large share of our imports, uh, our two economies over the course of the decades since 1989 have become deeply integrated. Uh, so when the United States makes a major course correction, Canada has little choice but to follow. Now you predict that the new IP protection generates some net benefits to the U.S. at Canada's expense. This by increasing copyright from 50 years to 70? It's from the copyright provisions which do increase the uh, term of protection uh, by 20 years as you mentioned. Also, the, there's an extension on the term of protection for data used in uh, getting a, a regulatory approval for biologic drugs. That's an ex expanded by two years. Uh, these are relatively minor tweaks to the uh, intellectual property uh, framework. Uh, we try and put a, a number on these uh, impacts, and they're relatively small for Canada, but they are negative because they imply uh, a, an, an increased flow of rent payments from Canada to the United States. This is not trade, this is a straightforward payment. So it's welfare enhancing for the United States and welfare detracting for Canada. Let's break that down a little bit. Help me understand that because adding 20 years to intellectual property protection, I would see it as a content creator, as something that would have a negative impact on me. Are you suggesting that there's a, a back catalog of music, of cultural creation in the United States that we won't have access to without having to pay for it in a way that we didn't have before? So the classic story uh, is that of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and Disney waited to make that movie 
uh, until the day that the original copyright expired and then it made the movie because it did not want to uh, pay royalties to the rights holders. So there is a tendency on the part of the major reusers of intellectual property to wait for the expiry of copyright. So by extending by 20 years, there's a generation's worth of creative material that is now excluded from reuse. Books that will not be made into movies, songs that will not be uh, covered, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so there is a cost. It's not a huge cost because there's obviously there's a huge amount of content out there. But for Canada, uh, we are a small creator, so we get some benefit from this. Our, our creators uh, who, uh, or they, they're, they're, uh, their heirs, uh, do get 20 more years of protection for their copyrighted material as well. But we are a net payer. So our estimates are that we, Canada gets a small amount uh, of, of new revenue from this, but we pay the U.S. and others uh, much more. It's, again, it's a small impact on the economy overall, but in our estimation, it's a negative one. You can go back as far as 2002. They, they, were, they were pushing back against that even in their own country. Well, there was at that time uh, a major uh, effort uh, or a, a major analysis done by uh, a, a number of leading economists, including a handful of Nobel laureates who pointed out that the incentive for additional creation, that extending copyright uh, by 20 years or whatever at that time, I think, think this is called the Sonny Bono Act. Right, yes. <laughs> right, had very limited impact in terms of the marginal creativity, but it did have this cost uh, in terms of higher uh, cost to consumers. So they advocated against that extension and the same analysis would apply to the current one from 50 to 70 years for Canada. There was a quote that uh, was the Shirley MacLaine defense, I will create after I am dead. So there's benefits to those who own that IP, but for the rest of the community creating derivative works, that was where the money was lost. That's precisely the case. The other uh, label for that particular bill was the Trust Fund Babies Bill. Right. So tell me, though, about the protection for biologic pharmaceuticals being increased from eight years to 10. Give us an example of what a biologic drug is and really how big of a deal this is in the large, in the big scheme of things in the pharmaceutical industry. It's a biologic drugs are drugs that are based not on um, chemicals, inert chemicals, but on living organisms. Uh, I'm not a, an expert in this area, by the way, uh, being a, a trading economist. <laughs> You're not a doctor. You just play one on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I just do trade economics. But uh, from my perspective, this is a, a protected piece of intellectual property. And the key thing here is that the data that is used to uh, obtain approval for a biologic drug has got eight years of protection. So... Uh, the generic drug manufacturers have to wait for eight years before they can rely on these test results and use the, uh, these same data to get approval for generic uh, equivalents. So when that's extended by two years to 10 years, now the generics have to wait two more years to obtain access to these data. So it delays the, uh, the, the um, introduction of generic drugs 
the Australians uh, faced this um, issue when they signed onto their free trade agreement with the United States, and they did some work, and there's been a fair amount of uh, analysis done in the Australian context. So we drew on the uh, the, the results of that exp natural experiment to uh, put a figure on what this implies for Canada, and I believe we have a figure on the order of uh, $200 million to rising to about $260 million, if I co recall correctly, in terms of additional payments that will flow out of Canada to the United States uh, and, and possibly to other countries uh, in terms of expanded costs for medical um, uh, purchases over the course of this um, agreement. Now, I should mention one thing. Uh, there's a five-year delay in this, so these measures won't uh, kick in until uh, five years after the deal is ratified, so probably in around 2025 or so. Uh, we actually included it in our shorter time horizon to give uh, to, to scale the overall impact, but uh, it, this will only happen in five years. I've looked up on the internet, so you know it must be true, examples of biologics, uh, and I'm, I'm really quite surprised that these are fairly common. Um, insulin, uh, a, a long-acting form of insulin called Lantus. Uh, the uh, biologics for rheumatoid arthritis treatments like Humira uh, and others. Uh, right all the way down to Avastin for uh, retinal diseases. And of all things, Botox. <laughs> Maybe that should have been the headline. We would have gotten a lot more attention on that front had we known that our ability to retain our youth was at risk. Well, I think actually the more interesting case is the first you mentioned, which is insulin. Uh, insulin uh, was uh, developed by uh, or identified as, as, as a useful drug in, I think, 1920s in Canada by Frederick Banting, mm -hmm. who sold the patent to the University of Toronto for $1 uh, to put this into um, uh, a public domain. And it is extraordinary that uh, a century later, the cost of insulin is extraordinarily high in countries that uh, apply this, this level of protection for pharmaceuticals. It's not the original insulin, but there are small tweaks to it, including the pen which will inject the uh, insulin and so forth, which are copyrighted. And this raises the cost of insulin to uh, in, in the United States to users to the order of several thousand dollars a month and in fact causes people to not be able to afford it. Lower income people can't afford it. That's an extraordinary development for something that was developed 100 years ago and basically given away uh, as, as a public uh, uh, a good. I, I wonder if we are at risk of having the same conversation maybe 100 years from now, so to speak, when it comes to our data-driven economy for one of those other elements that you raise attention to, which is something that I can imagine back in the early days of insulin, we were just learning how powerful this was going to be. And today we're just learning how powerful data is going to be. What are the implications of the non-use of data localization measures in, in which a Canadian could expect Canadian data to be stored on Canadian servers? Are we opening the door for Americans to run roughshod over Canadian privacy rights by pillaging our information stored on American servers? This area is burgeoning with uh, new issues uh, and with new possibilities in terms of uh, innovation by companies. And we are just starting to wrap our minds around uh, all the various regulatory implications. 
in my own writing, I have emphasized that, in my opinion, data is not treaty ready. We're not ready to enter into binding international uh, treaties. But let me give you a couple of, of insights into the way we approach the quantification of the of these measures in our study for the CD How. Uh, we started off with um, the fact that there is a, a method developed by the United States International Trade Commission to quantify this. They identify the uh, amount of data or the value of data by sector, uh, potential uh, value of data by sector, and they say, well, what if this was shut off by data localization or restrictions on the free flow of data? What would that cost the United States economy? because the U.S. is, of course, the major uh, source of uh, provision of these kinds of services right now through its major platform firms like Facebook and Google and so forth. And they came up with a very large figure on the order of $90 billion to double that pretty much. Uh, and that would turn what they estimate to be a negative impact on the U.S. economy of about minus a tenth of a point uh, on GDP to a, a significant positive. So we looked at that and said, well, first, um, Canada has already signed on to these kinds of measures that require uh, or, or, or that restrict the use of data localization and or the, the restrictions on the free flow of data to only instances where there are legitimate public policy reasons for doing so, national security, some form of privacy, and in contexts where this is the least trade restrictive method of doing so. So Canada and Mexico are already subject to these kinds of provisions under the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive uh, Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP. Uh, so we don't see a huge benefit for the United States in the U.S. Uh, MCA, or CUSMA, as we call it here in Canada, in this new agreement. The second thing that is really uh, not clear to us is uh, what are the uh, what is the scope for the legitimate exceptions? Now let's start looking at the national security issue. Um, the United States has essentially said, with respect to Huawei, that not only can Huawei not participate in the management of the Internet of Things infrastructure for the U.S., the U.S. Huawei cannot even participate in providing the hardware for that infrastructure let alone having the U.S. information bounce through China where it could be intercepted by Chinese authorities. So there is an extreme form of national security uh, uh, or, or application of that national security rationales to restrict the flow of data, to restrict the uh, participation of foreign companies in the management of this data, and even in the supply of the hardware for this data. So what does that mean for Canada if we apply a national security lens to what data can flow outside of our borders? Would we allow, for example, the essential information governing our electricity grid, our financial system, our uh, telecommunication system, our transportation system to be flowing across borders or be up in the cloud where it could be hacked by anyone and bring our country to a standstill? So if we apply that lens, we, what portion of the freedom of uh, companies to have the free flow of data across borders, how, how would that be compromised? Now, if you think about that, th that these measures apply essentially to covered entities, that is to investors, 
Uh, that seems a, a bit less uh, threatening. But what happens when, say, a Google uh, sidewalk project is actually governing all of the flow of information off your transportation, off your telecommunications? But can't it be content to have all of that out there in the cloud flowing across borders and not subject to Canadian control? So we're not sure what this all means at this stage, what the regulations will be on national security, on privacy, things on, on, on sovereignty, for example, to ensure the integrity of our election processes. So we can't tell how much of this potential restriction on, on data flow will actually be legitimate and how much will be deemed to be illegitimate. And then finally, there is the issue of insurance. Now, we know that some countries have opted to uh, create their own independent national e-commerce structures, which in effect require the localization of service, require the, uh, uh, the use of, uh, or the, of restrictions on flow of data across borders. Uh, is Canada going to put in place a national e-commerce framework separate from the United States? I don't think so. So again, what's the risk factor for the United States? I think in terms of what the current commitments that we have made to the United States in that regard probably are less than one might uh, think in terms of the maximum possible impact. But nonetheless, they may constrain the development of uh, Canadian policy in some fashion in ways that we can't really anticipate. So we're, uh, we're ambivalent in terms of putting any figure on this, but we're aware that's important. I guess the final point I would make on this is that Canada has only just started to put estimates on the value of data uh, Statistics Canada in June uh, of this year released a preliminary trial evaluation. Uh, well, we, well uh, the, the situation that we're in right now is very similar to that in the 1980s when Robert Solo, uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, commented wryly that uh, the computers are everywhere to be seen except in the national accounts and the productivity statistics. Today, Data is everywhere to be seen, except in our national trade accounts, in our national economic accounts, and in our trade statistics. And we're just starting to figure out exactly how valuable data is. So if data is this new oil, and you enter into a treaty that says, it shall flow across your borders without any royalty payment, does that sound like a good idea? I'm not sure it is. I want to rewind to your point that you made earlier about sidewalk labs, because in the city of Toronto, the, the city that generates 20% of the country's GDP, we are in the process of building an experiment with that Google division to essentially create a miniature city um, powered by all of these fantastical new technologies and data mining systems that Google has been developing over the last decade or so. Are you suggesting to me that an American company, which has set up a lab-like city in a Canadian uh, jurisdiction, would have the ability to say, no, 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 we're going to keep all of our data about your Canadian city we've set up in an American server on American property, and you as a jurisdiction, Toronto, have no right to demand that that data be stored in Canada? That would be the effective impact of this commitment because Google would be a covered entity. It would be a, a legitimate investor in Canada. And as such, any restrictions on the flow of data 
would have to be justified by a legitimate exception. And under the USMCA, there are no restriction, there are no uh, uh, exceptions for uh, data localization. So um, Google would be free to store its uh, data anywhere it wants to in the cloud, uh, in Ireland, in uh, the United States, or wherever. Uh, and we could only restrict the flow of data insofar as there was uh, a case was made that th that this was necessary to protect Canadian um, uh, values in some sense, privacy. Uh, for example, supposing that we were to say in the in the run up to uh, an election, there will be a, a four week window wherein certain kinds of data must be restricted to Canada so that we can ensure that we do not have uh, foreign players uh, this, uh, circumventing Canadian election uh, funding laws or uh, sending messages that uh, intervene in, in Canada's uh, public debate over the, the next government. So that's the situation we would be facing. We've been handcuffed here from a privacy rights management perspective. Privacy is one thing. I think the national security issues are probably larger. Uh, the Traditionally, if you, if you look at the uh, way that we regulate our analog world, the real, so the physical world, uh, the backbone infrastructure services, uh, which include the transportation, telecoms, uh, uh, energy, and uh, finance, these have been kept close, uh, the regulation of these have been kept close by, by, by national governments because they understand that uh, these can be, if, if these are shut down, you shut down the, your economy. Uh, you can imagine if uh, you were facing a, a military threat and your entire telecommunications transportation system was shut down just before an attack, you would not be able to respond. So um, that's not the situation we face with the United States. But uh, the, uh, the issue would be that if, this, uh, if control of, of these backbone infrastructure services is in the cloud, it can be hacked by anyone. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the uh, whole city shut down through these uh, WannaCry attacks and for the ransomware attacks. And uh, so this is a, a major concern, I think, going forward as more and more of our economic activity, as more and more of the management of our physical interactions within our economy uh, goes online and is uh, subject to these kinds of hacking attacks. Privacy is just one subset of that. We talked about the implications of the 5G rollout with Huawei in the United States. This agreement, it sounds to me, means that Canada is put in a very difficult situation as far as our relationship with the Chinese telecommunications equipment manufacturer. As 5G rolls out North America wide, we've already got Huawei gear in Canada's biggest telecommunications companies. We already have those ones and zeros filing through Chinese-made products. Does this agreement require that as we roll out 5G in Canada, that we have to ab abandon existing infrastructure investments in Huawei to comply? Now, I don't believe that there's anything in this new agreement which goes so far. I, I think the question of whether Canada can have an independent structure for its Internet of Things uh, that 
and, and maintain its access to U.S. intelligence um, through the Five Eyes system, that is an issue. Uh, so there would be a cost to Canada of going with a system that the United States deems to be uh, insecure from its national security perspective. Uh, but that's not in the agreement. That is just part of our larger relationship with the United States. But as we roll out 5G, it's going to require a new capital investment in the hardware from the towers and everything on back. Does this agreement with the Americans and the Mexicans mean that Canada can't use new Huawei gear to put on a tower? Well, that's the billion-dollar question, multi-billion-dollar question facing Canada and a lot of other countries. Uh, so the UK, for example, has been grappling with this and determined that uh, they can use Huawei in certain limited circumstances, uh, not the core of its uh, IoT. Uh, Europe is grappling with this as well. My own perspective on this is uh, a skeptical one. Uh, we are very early in the uh, rollout of, of the Internet of Things, and the pace of technical innovation is extraordinarily rapid. Uh, so we have, this is an arms race kind of a situation where you have vulnerabilities are uh, identified, exploited, patches are made, and the system that will be actually in place uh, and functioning when we have things like self-driving cars on the road will be several generations of this arms race down the line. The current uh, uh, equipment that is being put in place will feature legacy uh, uh, vulnerabilities that will have been long since patched. And uh, so to my, to my way of thinking, uh, the participation by Huawei in the rollout of, of 5G is an essential one. They've done a lot of hard work. They've invested uh, tens of billions of dollars in research and development. They've acquired a, a very powerful position in terms of controlling um, standard essential patents in this space, and they are a legitimate player. But do you trust them? I don't think it's an issue of trusting the company. We have, for example, the issue lies in whether or not the Chinese government could compel Huawei to pass on information uh, that it has in its possession to the government of China. So imagine that you have, again, we're down several generations down the line where this, uh, this uh, infrastructure is actually in place and being used. Will, will Huawei, as a, an equipment supplier, actually have access to that information? Will we not have patched all the vulnerabilities? Uh, again, uh, I'm a skeptic on this. I believe that the uh, the, the pace of technological innovation in, in these areas is extraordinarily rapid. The, there's an increasing set sophistication on both sides of the, uh, you know, hackers and anti-hackers, uh, those exploiting vulnerabilities and those patching them. So I, I think that the, the idea that at the current stage that we uh, have to shut Huawei out of the uh, build out of the IoT, I think that that's a wrong conclusion. And ultimately in this world, uh, China and the United States are going to be two extraordinarily powerful and important economies. And if we 
allow this technological cold war to result in a silicon curtain going down uh, across the Pacific and dividing the world, I think will be a very poorer place than uh, if we find a modus vivendi whereby uh, both parties can participate. Uh, and, and think about this from an African perspective. If you're in Africa, you don't have access to American options. You don't have access in, real, in, in practical terms to the more expensive European uh, options provided by Nokia and Ericsson. You, you, uh, Africa is an, a Huawei lake. So we have to think in terms of how the whole world can uh, move forward in, ex in exploiting and taking advantage of these uh, powerful new technologies and not in terms of uh, casting the issue as who's going to be number one. So I, I hope that uh, uh, some accommodation will be uh, found. To me, it, it feels like when you talk about the acceleration of the technology and the idea that we would be patching vulnerabilities, it, it, I get the mental image of the I Love Lucy scene where Lucy's in the candy factory trying to shove the chocolates into her mouth because she can't get them in the box fast enough. <laughs> There's, there seems to be that element of it. On, uh, on, on Twitter, I, uh, I follow the... Uh, uh, a technological community which uh, comments on all of this, and periodically you see um, from the the, the uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, companies, you see a list of you know here's a set of new vulnerabilities and here's a set of new patches, and you wonder, oh my god. Um, but I'll say this: um, it, 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 typically, the backdoors and vulnerabilities are as extensive, if not more so for Cisco products, which is, of course, an American company, than they are for Huawei. Right, which was part of the whole WikiLeaks dump that revealed that the Americans had known about these vulnerabilities for years, but the CIA kept them because they wanted their own playbook. Exactly. They wanted access to this for to make it easy. I mean, in terms of spying capability, uh, I, I think there's unparalleled capacity uh, in the United States and through the Five Eyes Network, through all the satellites, through the uh, tapping of international cables, whatever. Uh, there's an enormous capability of intelligence gathering. Uh, so the additional uh, uh, sort of flexibility provided by uh, being able to access easily as some back doors probably is very, very marginal to them, but uh, I, this is not my area. But what we do know is that those vulnerabilities are there. They're there by on the demand of national security agencies. And of course, we're on the American side of the security divide. So from this perspective, we have to be very cognizant of, of protecting the United States uh, uh, security uh, information. And uh, we, we are not in, in the situation, say, of uh, Malaysia, which is not within that, that zone. And, and Huawei, so Malaysia has said no, they will actually favor Huawei as, in, in, as a pointed rebuke to the U.S. attempt to freeze Huawei out. So we're not in that situation. This is the geography dictating for us. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we are early in this uh, process. Uh, these patches and bugs are, are, are being developed rapidly and whatever is put in place today will be several generations old of stuff that the, the tech community will have a complete handle on by the time any of this becomes a practical reality. So 
that's my perspective on this. You point out uh, as we move on to Section 232, it doesn't remove the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum, which would be an impact on our auto industry in a big way, but then we got a separate agreement that did. The fact the agreement doesn't remove Section 232 tariffs, but there was a separate document that did, what does this mean in the long run? Well, for the agreement itself, which structures the, uh, the trading and production relationships within North America, this means that the agreement does not rule out unequivocally the future application of these Section 232 national security tariffs to any product from Canada. Now, we've seen a very expansive interpretation of what constitutes a national security issue by the United States. Uh, the, uh, there was a, um, uh, a Silicon Valley firm, Grinder, which uh, uh, specialized, I think, believe in, in gay dating. Um, and this was ruled a national security issue for the United States because if it was sold to China, China would have this information that could be then used to blackmail Americans who wish to keep their sexual orientation private. Uh, so it goes as far as that. In respect of aluminum, there was this uh, extraordinary statement by um, the U.S. Uh, Trade Representative, Mr. Lighthizer, uh, commenting before Congress, he said uh, about Canadian aluminum that it's not that it's Canadian, it's that it's aluminum. In other words, if the United States deems a product, whether it's aluminum or uh, widgets, to be a national security issue, then regardless of who is providing that, it becomes subject to, potentially subject to these tariffs. And there is no limit on what these tariffs can be. There's not, nothing that says it's only 25%. It could be 100%. It could be prohibitive. Uh, th this is not subject to WTO rules. This is a further feature of the national security tariff. When, in 1989, when Canada was negotiating the, uh, the free trade, or 1988, when we were negotiating the free trade agreement with uh, the United States, the original one, it was a walkaway issue for Canada whether we got some discipline on the application of anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures on Canadian exports to the United States. In that context, we already had disciplines under the, uh, at that time, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT, the precursor of the WTO. We had disciplines on the application of anti-dumping and countervailing duties in, in hand. Nonetheless, it, Canadian uh, uh, officials and, and, and the Canadian business community felt so strongly about the risk to Canadian exports that they wanted, insisted upon having some uh, uh, a discipline on the U.S. use of these measures within the bilateral agreement. And that led to the Chapter 19, the famous Chapter 19 measures, the binational panels. Mm -hmm. So in my estimation, if we compare the risk to Canada from anti-dumping and countervailing duties in 1988, when they were on the rise in the U.S., to Section 232 tariffs today, the 232 tariffs are far more dangerous. The, the anti-dumping countervailing duty were at least subject to WTO rules on how you calculated them uh, and, and how you applied them. 
And so there were limits to them based upon the margins of dumping uh, or margins of subsidy that could be found. Mind you, these were uh, stretched enormously by the methods that were adopted. But nonetheless, there was some discipline on this. Uh, there is no discipline whatsoever on the national security tariffs. The United States holds that these are non-justiciable, that is, they are not subject to a panel interpretation or rulings, and indeed they are self-defining. So national security is what the United States says it is, uh, and that means that it can apply to literally anything. So if you have a protectionist administration, such as the one currently in place in the United States, that puts a tremendous risk over pretty much anything that we export to the United States. And we have no discipline on this in the, in the new agreement. I wonder then if the sunset clause, the one that you point out is, is a negative because it creates uncertainty for investment as well as trade. I wonder if the sunset clause is the price we had to pay for maintaining Chapter 19's dispute mechanism in the document itself, because wouldn't Chapter 19 be our only option? And, and a mechanism that has protected Canada from U.S. protectionism ever since NAFTA was signed, wouldn't we use Chapter 19 whenever the Americans used Section 232 to say ice cream is a national security measure, no Canadian ice cream without tariffs. Uh, no, as the binational panel process applies to the trade remedies, not to national security tariffs. That's the thing. It's outside of any kind of discipline whatsoever. And the same thing, by the way, goes with the Section 301 uh, 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 measures that the United States has been adopting against China. These are outside of uh, any rules uh, governed by the WTO. Indeed, one of the key features of getting the WTO in place was to sideline the use of Section 301. Uh, no one was even talking about uh, Section 232 at that time, but 301 was a major issue at that time, and it fell into disuse after the WTO agreement was signed. And the resurrection of these measures by the Trump administration is therefore a truly major development. It has undermined the, uh, the agreements that were put in place uh, multilaterally to limit the use of unilateral trade protection. And so that genie is out of the, uh, the bottle. And unfortunately, uh, in the agreement that we have with the United States, there is no way to put it back in the bottle. Dan Kuriak is the co-author of Quantifying Cusma, The Economic Consequences of the New North American Trade Regime. He joined us from his office in Ottawa. Still to come from the CD Howe, when innovation meets compliance, supporting Canada's regtech community. On September 11th, the Institute's Toronto office hosts a roundtable luncheon with Apex's CEO, Tanya Blackmore, Pat Chakos of the Ontario Securities Commission, and the global head of financial crimes risk management at Scotiabank, Stuart Davis. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Thank you.